deep end here, okay? So Psalm 34, and I'm going to read right before verse 1, that subscript. And it says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he, see, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, a couple of years ago, I was driving, and I was in a big rush, and I knowingly turned right on a red light when I wasn't supposed to. Okay, the sign was right there, don't turn right, but I was in a rush, so I made the turn, and in my hurry, I didn't realize that there was a police car right on the other side of the street. So as soon as I made the right turn, I saw the flashers come up on my mirror, and I knew that I was in trouble he walks over, and I don't even try to play it out. I'm just like, man, I am so sorry. I was in a hurry, but that doesn't justify it. I, I, I made a mistake. I know what I did. He took my driver's license, my insurance card, and for the next 10 minutes, he sits in his car looking through my stuff, and I have no idea why it takes so long, but he's sitting there for 10 minutes, and I'm just so embarrassed with all the cars looking at me, and I'm just waiting in anguish, you know, for, for, what, for this ticket and how it's going to change my life and how I have to change my plans. So he comes back to my car gives me back my driver's license and insurance card, and he tells me that, hey, you know what? I'm just going to give you a warning. Don't do this again. You're free to go. Shut your face. Are you for real? What? That's it? I'm free to go? No ticket? No fine? No traffic school? Next to my kids being born, it was the greatest moment of my life. Well, okay, and, and being married and, and coming to know Christ and then this ticket, okay? So, so in, that, in that order, okay? So I was just so excited about that. I was praising God at the top of my lungs. I was smiling and waving at everyone on the highway, like, how are you guys doing? How are you doing? You know? And I'm just like pumping my fists, clapping my hands. I was exuberant 
over my deliverance. You know, actually, in today's psalm, uh, David is exuberant over his deliverance. Now, in a lot of the psalms that we've preached in, we actually don't know a lot of context in psalm, in some of the psalms that we read, but we actually know the context of this one, and it's in the subscript. Look at it again. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. The context of Psalm 34. Now, let me just share what's going on here. So this is in reference to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. So in the story of King David, right? David is this shepherd boy, and he's anointed to be, the, to be the next king of Israel. And even though David is the youngest son of Jesse, the smallest in stature, God chose him because he was a man after God's own heart. And one of the clearest ways that we see this, this God-fearing heart, was this infamous battle against Goliath. That Goliath was this Philistine who was mocking God and the army of God for weeks. And the soldiers and King Saul, they were too scared to take on Goliath because he was a giant of a man. But David shows up, hears how Goliath is mocking God and the people of God, and David says, enough's enough. It's time to go to war with this guy. So David says, I'll fight him. And not only does David fight Goliath, he kills him for the glory of God. And overnight, almost instantly, people begin to sing on the streets. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David becomes an immense celebrity all across the, the surrounding world. King Saul, he hears this, and in his insecurity, he's like, David's got to die. I've got to kill this guy. So David runs for his life. And of all places to run to, he goes to hide in a Philistine city that Abimelech or Achish, who are the same guy here, that they ruled over. And this was the city of Gath. This was the Philistine city of Gath. Do you know who else came from the city of Gath? Goliath came from Gath, the champion of the Philistine army whom David killed. So David, out of all places to hide from Saul, he goes to Gath. So he moves from the frying pan straight into the fire, and it isn't long before people begin to notice David. And they say, hey, isn't that the guy who killed our champion Goliath? Hey, isn't he the guy who has killed our friends and our brothers in the battle against the Israelites? We should kill that person. David knows that he's a dead man. He's in Gath. They've seen him. He knows that he is in big trouble. So what David does, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 21 22, is that he begins to act like a crazy person. He starts scratching up the walls and floors with his fingernails, drool, you know, and I imagine boogers are coming down his beard. And by the miracle, miracle of God, Achish sees David and says, People, don't you understand that I already have enough crazy people in my city? I don't need another one. So he lets David go and sets him free. That's the context of Psalm 34, that David is now running away from Gath, being delivered and free, and he is exuberant over God's deliverance in his life that this was a man who was overwhelmed with gratefulness and praise for his God, that in his exuberance, David invites us to come and to taste that the Lord is good, that he invites us to learn what he learned about God, that God can do all things but fail. Verse 3, 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Join me and let's exalt his name together. Now, what does it mean to magnify God? Now, it doesn't mean to make God look big because he's small. No, no, no. It's the complete opposite. This is the difference between a microscope and a telescope. Let me just show it to you here, right? A microscope takes a tiny object and makes it look bigger because our eyes can't see it. This is not what David's saying. Instead, he sees God like we would a telescope looking at the sky. That telescopes take massive objects, like entire galaxies, which are so big and so far away that it looks like just tiny twinkling stars in the night sky because our eyes are too frail to see it. So the telescope magnifies it so that we can see it for what it really is. When David calls us to magnify the Lord, it's because in David's deliverance, it allowed him to see God for who he really is. So he invites us, join me, join me through worship, join, join me through our lives together to remind each other what is most real, what is most precious, what is most glorious, and that is the beauty and worth of God. Psalm 34 is an invitation to magnify God together because he is a God that brings deliverance. So here's the question for us this afternoon. What did David learn through his deliverance? What did he learn? You know, what words does he have for us who are in trouble? What truth do we need to hold on to? You know, here are three of many insights from this song, many insights, but let me just give you three that David highlights here from his deliverance. Here are the three things. First, God is attentive. Second, God is near. And then finally, God will rescue. He's attentive, he is near, and he'll rescue. So first, God is attentive. Look at verse 15 to 17 here. It says this again. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Friends, did you know that God never ever takes a single day off from graciously looking out for you? That no matter what you're going through, God knows it, God sees it, God is so sovereign over all things. So that even in bad things, God will take you through it because he has a good plan in it. It says in Romans 8.28, let me show it to you. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is why David can say, I will bless the Lord at all all times because even in the bad times god is going to find a way to make the bad stuff work for good this is god's promise he is attentive to us that when we walk through hard times god sees you he's got you he's not mad at you but he loves you and this is a promise that is meant to help us to endure because the temptation when we're in trouble is to believe god isn't watching us. We say, God, how could you have let this happen? God, did, God, did I do something wrong? Did I do something bad? Why, why are you forsaking me? God, are you asleep on the job? No, no. Verse 15, the 
eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God sees us and hears us. If we have placed our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, it is God's promise to look over us. And this is such good news because God's attentiveness is not transactional. What I mean by that is if God watching us was proportional to how much we watched him, it would mean that we would not be getting watched as much as we want. When God watches us, it is not dependent on me or how much I paid attention to him, but the gospel of grace says that God is faithful even when we are faithless. 2 Timothy 2.13. God is consistent. God is reliable. God stays on the job regardless if we stay on it or not. Now, this is not a license here for you to do whatever you want, but this is a sweet reminder of just how good our God is, how faithful and consistent he is. God makes it a habit to watch over his children. You know, let me just illustrate this. You know, for, for some of our parents here, especially parents of younger kids or you've watched younger kids, it is really hard to do. Now, let me just say that within those first six months, having an infant, that is great, okay, because they haven't learned to move yet. So when you have an infant and you leave them in one spot, you come back in five minutes, guess what? They're still in the same spot. That's awesome. That's fantastic. But after those first six months, your world begins to change in some big ways. Because now these kids are able to crawl, grab things. Now, some of you have kids who are overachievers. They can begin to walk and run, okay? It is a nightmare for parents. So as parents, we need to stay built. You know, we have to stay disciplined on our kids. You know, we have, we have to put down our Twitter and Instagram and actually pay attention to our kids. You know, you know, just recently, you know, we're at the beach and my youngest son, Easton, he always thinks that he can hang with his brothers and go deeper than what he can really handle. And I tell him as a good parent, like, hey, man, dude, it's so dangerous. Don't do this. It's not safe for you. You're going to trip and fall. Just, just don't do it. But my son, he doesn't care. He's eh, he wants to fight with me. And I'm exhausted fighting with him. So I just say, like, you know what, do whatever you want. I don't care anymore, okay? Sorry, it's not a great parenting moment, but I just let him go into the water. I'm like, fine, you know, if you want to learn it this way, go ahead and learn it. And as I warned him, what happens? He walks out there, the waves hit him, he doesn't have good balance, and he begins to fall into the water. And because he's only two years old, his arms aren't really developed enough for it. Even if he was to fall down and push himself up, he would still be under the water, and he would drown. Now, he doesn't know this, but I do. So he trips, he falls, but even though I said I wasn't watching him, I was watching him. You know, I wasn't six feet away. I was only six inches away from him. So as he falls in, I grab his arm right before he goes into water and pull him out like Superman. You know, it felt incredible. Now, here's the principle. I was able to catch my son because I was watching him. You know, in the same way, God promises to watch us. And just like this story, he is so intent on watching us that even our refusal to have him watch us doesn't negate his promises. Our doubts can't stop him. Our stuff can't stop him. Our pride can't stop him. God does not get distracted. He is always attentive. Let me read these verses again. Fifth, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears toward their cry. Verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears their cry. 
When we are in trouble and in crisis, God is watching us, not in a vindictive way, not waiting for us to mess up or to to rebel. He watches because he loves us, that he gazes on us with tenderness, with warmth, with affection. He listens to every prayer, takes note of every groan. He is moved by every cry of anguish. Now, others might ignore you. Others might slight you. God would never do that to you. God is attentive in our troubles. Here's a second insight. David also learned through his deliverance, and hopefully we'll learn the same thing, that God is near. God is near. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, many of us here, I have no doubt, have experienced a broken heart. Now, what does it mean to have a broken heart? You know, I think it means to have a broken heart is that is to have opportunities that you thought would happen never come true. That I think a broken heart is when you're really hoping and planning for something and having those expectations unmet. That's a broken heart. You know, for, for some of us here, our hearts are breaking over a relationship or a lack of a relationship. That maybe for some of us, our hearts are breaking because We've worked so hard for this career, but no one recognizes it or gives us a chance to grow. Our hearts are breaking over our children who are making decisions that lead them away from the Lord. Our hearts are breaking because we worry about that sickness that might take us away from those that we love. And when we have our hearts broken, we can't help but wonder, God, where are you? God, where are you in these unmet expectations? David learned through his deliverance that even with his heartbreak of being rejected, with his heartbreak of being the target of people's attacks, with his heartbreak of hearing that, David, one day you will be the king of Israel, but now he is living in caves and he is running for his life. In all this, David learned that God is near. So how did David learn this through his deliverance? How did he learn this? First, he understood that following God doesn't mean you will never suffer, okay? Now, sometimes there might be a belief that, hey, you know, once I become a Christian, then it's all like butterflies and rainbows and everything else. That's not the case at all. Actually, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It is to be expected that as a Christ follower, we're to follow in the steps of Jesus. And that sometimes means to suffer. Also, when you look at Psalm 34 here, notice, notice who's being afflicted. Notice who's suffering. Let me just point out a few verses. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, right? Now, let me ask you, in these verses, who is troubled? Now, it's the wicked, right? Because they need to be troubled. It's the sinners, right? They need to be punished for their sins. No, David says it's the righteous. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, not some afflictions, but many afflictions. 
troubles and afflictions are to be expected because we live in a world broken by sin. And frankly, this is true of everyone who breathes a breath here on earth. We all will be troubled. We will all suffer in some way. But this is where things get different and how God uses these troubles in our lives. In verses 21 and 22, we see the contrasting purposes of affliction for the righteous and the wicked. Look at verse 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Notice, affliction ruins the wicked. It's the end of their story. It's final judgment. But affliction for the righteous is not their end. For the wicked, affliction had a punitive effect. For the righteous, it's a purifying effect. That instead of hardening the heart, it makes the heart of a believer humble and sensitive to the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. In our affliction, we are not condemned. God does not separate and reject us. Instead, he promises to be near. Now, the word near in verse 18 in the Hebrew, is actually a very interesting word because the word actually can be translated as neighbor, as kinfolk, you know, as, as kinsmen, that this is someone that is close to you. And what David is saying here is that in our trouble, God is not only close to us in proximity, he is also close to us in fellowship. That God is not just closer to you in times of trouble, but he gets better to you in times of trouble. You know, this is why intimacy with God often grows in our troubles, because anything we trust outside of Jesus gets exposed for truly how weak it is. My self-sufficiency, my health, my bank account, my grades, degrees, my job title, when trouble hits our lives, all these things that we are counting on just don't work. And this is when Jesus becomes good and strong and sweet because he is all that I have. He is near the brokenhearted. Th thank you very much. Actually, right before this, my, my son had a birthday party. He, he went to a birthday party, so there's a lot of screaming during that time, okay? Thank you. He is near the brokenhearted. He will be with us in hard seasons. You know, I actually have a friend and fellow pastor. His name is Ricky who played football in high school, and he, he shared with me how during uh, a game, as he was playing, he got tackled and he got speared by two people from two different sides. And when it happened, you could just hear a hush go through the stadium. Because people were like, oh my goodness, I think he's paralyzed. And he was laying on the floor screaming for dear life, screaming. And as he was screaming, his uncle runs to the field, kneels next to him, and says, Rick, we're going to get you help. Hang in there. The ambulance gets there, and they begin to move Ricky to the, to, the, to, the, to the stretcher, and he's in so much pain that he is just screaming. And the uncle says, you know what, Ricky? Every time it hurts, squeeze my hand. So for the next 20 feet to the ambulance, it's, ah, squeeze ah squeeze ah squeeze ricky i'm with you 
Ricky gets the ambulance, makes it to the hospital, and with some therapy, he turns out a-okay, and the situation is just fine. Ricky said that in that moment of pain, he knew that he was going to be all right because his uncle was with him. He knew he could squeeze his hand. In Psalm 34, David learned that God is near in our troubles. We can squeeze his hand when it hurts. Friends, can I encourage you? Squeeze God's hand because he is near. And here's the final lesson that David learned in his deliverance. God will rescue. God will rescue. This is the source of his praise and adoration. And God will not just barely rescue. He will fully and finally rescue. Now, let me just show you a bunch of verses on the screen here. I'm not going to read all of them, but it's really tiny because there's a lot of them. But notice here how David talks about God's deliverance. And notice all the ways that he says all the time, no lack. Look at how complete and absolutely full God's deliverance is. Now, I actually think that the most powerful promise of rescue is actually in verse 20. Look at verse 20 here. Now, it says this. Verse 19, let me just read that verse first. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Verse 20, he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Now, when you hear verse 20, it might sound familiar because that's actually a messianic prophecy that in the Gospel of John, when Jesus hangs on the cross and dies, the soldiers decide not to break the bones of Jesus because breaking bones was a way to suffocate you know, the criminals. But Jesus is so dead, they're like, we don't need to do this. And in that moment, it says this in the Gospel of John. Let me show it to you. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken. Now, why does John quote Psalm 34? Why is this good news for us? Because it tells us of God's eternal plan to send us a deliverer. Now, some of you might know this, but back in the book of Exodus, there's this amazing story of how God delivers his people from the hands of Pharaoh, you know, through the ten divine acts. You know, the final act was the death of the firstborn, and a family would be spared if they were to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over that house. This was such an incredible moment of deliverance that God commanded the people of God to celebrate this every year as the Passover meal. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, God commands the people on how to prepare this meal, specifically the lamb. And let me show you what it says in Exodus chapter 12. It says, the lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. John quotes Psalm 34 because he is quoting this picture, that Jesus is the greater and better Passover lamb, that Jesus would be the one to spill his blood so that we would be saved, that the reason we know that we have a deliverer is because God sent us a deliverer. That's how we know this. And when the bones of Jesus were not broken, it was meant to tell us God is still in control. 
God is still sovereign. Everything was happening according to God's gracious plan. And three days later, we know that Jesus rises again. This is our eternal hope of verse 20. This is the hope of new life, hope of the resurrection, hope of a transformed and healed heart. And this is the promise for all believers. This is our eternal hope. God will rescue because he has sent a rescuer. So here's the question for you. Will you go to God for deliverance? David says again in verse 4 and 5, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. To seek God, to look to God, is to pray to God and trust him for your deliverance and salvation. And I love what it says here. It says that those who look to him will never be ashamed. Instead, in verse 5, it says, it says that their face will be radiant. Why does David even need to say that? Well, it's because when we come to God humbly, we will feel vulnerable. We're going to feel exposed, and David wants us to know that God promises that when you go to him, no matter how banged up you are, no matter how messy your life is, he will never shame you. He will never humiliate you. He will never mock you. He will never belittle you. Instead, our faces will be radiant. Our faces will glow. Why? Because we will have the joy of the Lord. Those who passionately seek God will never be disappointed. We can seek Him. We can trust Him with our eternal security. We can trust him for guidance and wisdom and forgiveness. We can trust him to never leave nor forsake us. We can trust him to be good and gracious and kind. And thus we can sing and shout the words of verse 1. I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. God is attentive. He is near. And he will rescue Verse 8 is the invitation. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust in him against all odds. Lean on him, rest on him, and when there seems to be no other way out, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come to him and magnify the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, I pray, God, that, Father, that these words that we've just read, had a chance to hear about, that, God, that these will not just be words that we would know, but, Father, that these, would be tr- these, these truths would be true of our own hearts. That, God, that we would want to magnify the Lord. And, God, at all times, all times, God, not just good times, not just easy times, but, God, even in hard times, uncertain times, Times where it's challenging because, Father, we know that you are good. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that whatever season we're in right now, whatever we're wrestling with and dealing with, God, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the eyes and the perspective that David learned in his deliverance. That, God, that you do deliver. That, Father, you are attentive. That you watch over us. You never take a day off. That, Father, you are near to us. That you're not just close to us in proximity, you are close to us in fellowship. 
And God, I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have joy in our hearts, Lord. Not necessarily happiness because it can come with our circumstances, but joy. Regardless of our circumstances, we have contentment because we know that we have an eternal hope in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, would you work in a mighty and powerful way? And God, help us as a church inside these walls and also outside these walls to magnify you because you are good. It's in Christ's name we pray.